the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. Serving the business of defence. With Grant McHeron and Ewan Levick. Hi everyone and welcome back to the show. This episode, we'll be chatting with Michael Shoebridge, founder and director of Strategic Analysis Australia, about the government's recently released response to the Surface Fleet Review and other topics. G'day, Michael. Welcome to the show. Grant, great to be with you. Uh, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. As am I. And it must be a good conversation coming up because for this episode, I'm once again joined by Ewan Levick, publisher at ADM Group. Ewan, how are you doing today? Good, Grant. You know I only pick the good episodes. Oh, now we've now now we've blown it for every other episode that you're not on. <laughs> <laughs> we can't have this podcast, I think, on Friday the twenty third of February when we're recording without talking about the Surface Fleet Review. What are your what's your overall take? When you read it, what were your first impressions? Well, one big impression was finally Richard Miles has convinced Treasurer Jim Chalmers and the Prime Minister to put some more money into the defence budget because the jarring contrast between what we heard in the strategic review, the most dangerous uh, security environment Australia has faced since the Second World War, and no new money for doing anything about it is just too much to keep walking past. So my first um, good news takeaway is there is some new money. Of course, we can talk about that. Unfortunately, the money isn't even enough to do what the review, what this latest Navy plan says, let alone fix the other giant black holes in the defence budget. That was my first impression. My second was really if you get a couple of old admirals and frigate drivers to do a review, you shouldn't be terribly surprised when what they suggest is you need more things that they remember when they were a boy. So it was a huge missed opportunity to embrace the small, the smart and the many. And they didn't even throw a bone at the small, the smart and the many. They just bought the big, expensive and few. So it's a missed opportunity. Could that have been driven by the, um, well, yeah, like this, the terms of on reference and so on? They, they, they were told you have to assume that AUKUS and the submarine are going to be there. So did that kind of drive them into the, well, let's think big rather than the need for those, as Ukraine is showing, and you said, the small and many? Well, I think you could say there's a sort of bureaucratic answer to why the uh, the Navy plan just gave us more surface ships. You could say, so the scope was surface combatants, so the only answer is surface combatants. But really, if you've got independent reviewers and they're looking at our Navy isn't powerful enough, how can we make it more powerful? And AUKUS submarines are in the bag. Everything else that makes it more powerful should have been allowed to be in scope. And if I'd been them, I would have said, look, this is crazy. I can talk a bit about more frigates and missile cells, but I got to talk about the things that are sinking everybody's ships. Just for the benefit of um, listeners that who may not have read the surface fleet review. So we're looking at a cut from 900 class ships to 600 class ships as the tier ones. Uh, 7 to 11 general purpose frigates as the tier twos, a number of large uh, optionally crewed surface vessels and a reduction in the OPVs uh, from 12 to 6. I've probably missed a few things there, but is uh, I believe we've got 11.1 billion uh, committed now to deliver that new fleet. Is that enough? 
No, no, and it, it won't even be delivered over the 10 years the money is allocated for. So the $11.1 billion is split up into two buckets. In the forward estimates, so this four years that we're in, $1.7 billion, and the rest of it is backloaded into the next six of the 10-year period. But looking at the uh, timeframe for these new 11 general purpose frigates, they want to have the first one turn up by the end of this decade. So whether that's 2029 or 2030, we don't know. Probably have a one-year drumbeat. So in the 10-year period, they're going to have four or five of them. They've still got 11, a total of 11. So if you get four or five, you've got six or seven still to deliver, and you're out of the $11.1 billion. So even the general purpose frigates aren't budgeted for, and those six large optionally crewed vessels, mobile missile trucks, they're even further out in time. So the $11.1 billion doesn't cover them. And that's just for those two things rather than everything else you need to make it work. Something uh, I think a lot of people have noticed uh, and some of the commentary I think you've put out through Strategic Analysis Australia is the fact that you know when, a, when an Australian program like the Hunter Class Frigates, for example, we've looked at the cost of that blowout from $35 billion to now $65 billion, driven, I think, in part by uh, a desire to create the perfect capability, and it's you know, it's uh, chasing the perfect at the expense of the good enough. How if we're only going to get six frigates now for still a cost of what is it, forty-five billion? How can we possibly get a, eleven frigates, um, or even however many frigates we end, and intend to get by the end of the decade for eleven point one billion? It just seems like we're going to have to really change our culture of what we expect out of these capabilities to hit that price point. Well, I think the Hunter class is the iconic version of the perfect, the magical future perfect. So it's taken so long to gestate as a design. And here we are, selected in 2018. Production hasn't even started of the first Australian ship yet, and $4 billion has gone out the door. So if you wanted to know what is probably the poster child for slow, exquisite, uh, attempting to future-proof, but unfortunately, today's technology in 15 years, the Hunter is that thing. Uh, so this this new general purpose frigate is actually meant to reverse that behaviour and say to the Royal Australian Navy, you need to buy something that another Navy already has and you need to stop tinkering with it. You know, it's, I always think of this as like the Summonats behaviour by the Royal Australian Navy. You know, they, they, they buy a Corolla, but they really want a Lamborghini. So they then, before they get the Corolla, they start you know, talking to the designer and then bolting extra bits on. And at the end of it, they've spent the price to get a Lamborghini, but it's still a Corolla with stuff all over it. <laughs> I like that analogy. Yeah. So something that came out of the surface review was on the general purpose frigates, um, where they were quite specific with listing which general purpose frigates they might want. Those are the, the Miko A200, the Megami 30FFM, Daegu class, uh, FFX batches two and three, and the Navantia, um Alpha 3000, I think. Wh- which of those um, do you think is the most viable option if this actually does come to fruition and we don't have another review in two years? Well, I think there are other options aside from these Magic Four that have somehow become the dream team. Um, If you looked at them just on paper, you'd have to say the Korean or Japanese ship 
look look the strongest contenders. But then you can't bring a decision here without thinking, what about the street strategic, industrial and political side of this? And I think to myself, if I was Mitsubishi, the makers of the Japanese frigate, I remember having a conversation with Australians not very long ago where it was a government-to-government deal that I was going to build submarines for the Australians. And the, they told me they were all in. They could, you know, I could rely on them. Then they said they wanted to run a limited beauty contest, and then I lost. I didn't even want to sell them to them. It was my government trying to give them crown jewels that they spurned. So on paper, it might be a great ship, but can the industrial arrangement and government arrangement be made? And you can make similar arguments if you're interested about each of the other uh, three. And don't forget the French will be saying, here, hold my wine and let me tell you a story. Well, at least a French ship was not on the list because I think that would have been obviously too embarrassing for all concerned. Mm-hmm. But you've got to wonder, how are other countries feeling about us of having seen what we've done with attack class, how we've had problems with Hunter? Admittedly, we're going ahead with it. But you know, Australia doesn't have a great reputation for, uh, unless it's American, buying and implementing. Well, I've raised the issue that we now have sovereign risk. When people look at our government and our defence organisation saying, hey, we'd like you to be part of a competition because we really like your stuff, whatever it is. Because think of what we've done. We've just shot the OPV in the head. So it's another German shipbuilder, very capable German shipbuilder. Hammer, big Korean defence company, and Rheinmetall, we had them in a beauty contest for 10 years. We made them spend millions of dollars. And then right at the end, even with the winner, we managed to really, really cause them trouble by cutting the buy by two-thirds. So congratulations. You know that prize you thought you were getting? Well, it's one-third as big as it was before. So the government-to-government and company relationships aren't simple with this repeated behavior. And my view is, if time is of the essence, why on earth are we running a four-ship, four-country, four-ship builder beauty contest? Why don't we sole source? This is actually a point, uh, Michael, I made opening the ADM Congress this week. Is that So I started with ADM in uh, 2018, March 2018, two months before Lesson had been told they'd be building 12 OPVs. Uh, two years before, which was, came out of the 2016 Defence White Paper, Naval Group, you were told that they would be building the attack class submarines. Two months after I started, BAE were told they'd be building 900 class frigates. And Obviously, we can debate and we will debate uh, the merits of the decisions that have happened since then. But the fact is, none of those decisions have survived. And what that means, to me looking in, I think a lot of uh, people in industry would agree with this. The biggest risk right now to industry is government. I mean, the biggest risk is not bidding unsuccessfully on a program, putting all that time and money in and not winning a contract. The risk to industry is actually winning the contract and then having it be revised, cut, Whatever it might be, which is not which is not a an environment that any big overseas prime or even an Australian company in a parallel industry like mining is going to look at and think, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Sounds great. Yes, I think this is actually a strategic issue for the government and for the defence organisation because defence has thought it can just go to the market and the market loves them so much they'll always offer them and want to want to participate. You know, it's like. 
you know, whether George Clooney, and every time we say we're open to have a few dates, we get flooded with with attractive ladies and maybe hopeful men. You know, so but unfortunately, it's like someone said to me, Michael, if if you suddenly find yourself very attractive to people and you've never been uh, attractive to them before, have a look in the mirror because you probably haven't changed, so they probably want something from you. So I think when Australia looks itself in the mirror and reflects on the way we've cancelled uh, contracts and cut orders and misled people, we shouldn't think that we're the hottest game in town. We should realise we've got to work hard to build government-to-government and industrial partnerships. This is also what we do to our own industry as well. I mean, there's small industry and even the primes are having problems because these contracts are being changed and, okay, we've got to let workforce go. It's it's making it very hard to plan the future and, and actually build what we needed to have 10 years ago. Well, this this is another. So we're just talking about we're talking about big international companies, you know, Mitsubishi or Tyson Krupp or uh, Hamwa or, or um, you know some of the other big Lockheed Martins, that kind of thing. But really, this this issue about a reliable customer and cash flow applies even more to Australian medium and small firms, and they are some of the places where capability could get into service well before 2030. Nothing in this plan will, but reliable cash flow and actual contracts are what medium and small companies need. So this reliability of the Australian Defence Organisation as a customer is a big issue for Australian companies as well as the big offshore companies. It's interesting you bring that up actually, Michael, because this is another point that was made is that if you look at some of the things the US is doing, so they have um, other financial instruments that the Defense Department has access to that were originally pioneered by NASA back in the 50s to access uh, the capabilities of small companies quickly by being able to set their own contractual terms, so OTAs. The Pentagon has set up the Office of Strategic Capital to try and get a bit more um, private public investment into the defense sector. So those are government-backed loans, uh, co-loaned with private money. Obviously, in the space sector, we're seeing a move to space 2.0, where we've moved away from the government-dominated space exploration era into, and now I think just today, an American private company has made the first commercial moon landing. Odysseus, yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, to deliver the kind of capability that we're talking about needing, we're going to have to access some of that private capital. Defense is going to have to change its acquisition culture to allow that and move away from what is, I think, an outdated commercial model that no company in its right mind is going to look at and think, this is a reliable customer, I'm going to get involved with this industry, because as we've seen, it just isn't. Yes, well, we we haven't talked about it yet, but the large optionally crewed vessels that are in this Navy plan, six of them, and they're later in the plan than the general purpose frigates, and that's because the government and the Navy have said, will be a fast follower of the US Navy on this. Well, let me bring some news to Russell Hill. Uh, The US Navy is not all over its own future, and we can't bank on them having all the answers. And in the world of the small, the smart, and the many, Australian companies have real capability today that would surprise and disappoint the Russians, the Chinese, the Houthis, and everybody else who's a potential adversary. But 
because of this culture of, you know, it's like no one ever got sacked for buying IBM. In Russell, no one ever gets sacked for buying Boeing or Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman or BAE. Well, the world is full of small, fast-moving disruptors that are eating big, dominant firms' lunch. And a a company like Lockheed is busily trying to eat them before the new disruptors overturn their business. Why on earth is the Australian Defence Organisation not contracting directly with some of these capable disruptors rather than continuing to believe that the big end of town has all the answers? Possibly because of the structure of the way that you know, Commonwealth purchasing goes, Commonwealth purchasing regulations. Uh, as you said, no one ever got sacked for buying US. Uh, it's it's the safe bet. It's uh, no one asks too many questions. You can just go, oh, it's FMS. It's a known thing. I don't have to think too hard. I don't have to take a risk, which is hilarious because you wind up taking a risk anyhow because FMS is not perfection. Uh, you know, we've got problems with some of the wonderful toys we're getting from our partners through FMS and they're not getting addressed. Well, you can you can think to yourself, if you're in a public service job, I've minimized the risk by buying from the big end of town and buying FMS. What you have done is you have transferred the risk to the military operator in a time of conflict. So if, if they can feel happy with themselves with that behavior, they shouldn't. I, I remember I was, I was in Russell. Actually, I was over in the Prime Minister's Department at the time talking to somebody in Russell, time of the Afghan conflict, and it was there was an urgent request for some uh, particular stuff to help protect the troops in Afghanistan. And this person was complaining to me about the strident way the person in Afghanistan, the deployed military person in Afghanistan was talking. And they said, I just can't believe it. I said to them, you just don't understand the Canberra battle space. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like they need a uh, ticket to go over to that other battle space to see just what the reality is like. Well, you know, paper cuts are very dangerous and there is the risk of electrical shock from some of the devices on our desks, but it, I wouldn't refer to it as a battle space. But you know, back to the more serious point, if the Commonwealth procurement rules would recognise economic security as uh, an evaluation criteria then we wouldn't have any more excuses out of the defence procurement officials saying, well, I'd love to do it, but the procurement rules won't let me. And if if defence officials actually took the procurement rules seriously and said, this is why this is value for money, they could do this anyway now. So Alan Hawke said, learn helplessness. He was right then, and it's right now. You mentioned uh Ukraine before. And this is kind of an interesting discrepancy, I think, between the DSR and the Surface Fleet Review. So the DSR uh, advocated essentially an area denial, uh, anti-access and area denial strategy for Australia. That was the big policy change that it made. In Ukraine, we've seen the Ukrainians implement a naval A2AD strategy. They don't have a navy, but they've managed to force Russia's Black Sleaf fleet to stay away from Ukraine's coast through the use of the small, the smart, and the many. And they've inflicted uh, quite serious damage in doing so. Yet despite the DSR advocating for Australia to take on a maritime A2AD approach, we've now had a surface fleet review that has ignored the mechanism by which Ukraine has just achieved that and put a whole bunch of new surface ships out there. The LOSV, I think, is a little bit of a nod in that direction, but it's not. Uh, it's 
I mean, it's not what the Ukrainians are doing, and I don't think it counts as small Spartan many. No, well, the OSV um, really, I think, can be explained a different way. It's not about autonomy because the Deputy Prime Minister, who's also the Defence Minister, Richard Miles, said when he was asked about it, oh, it's optionally crude, but we're going to crew it. So um, it's not optionally crude anymore. It's crude. But <laughs> I think the explanation for those six vessels is these general purpose frigates they're buying don't have enough missile cells to be credible. So it's a bit like, you know, they bought the Hyundai um, Accent station wagon and they wanted to go camping and they couldn't fit all their stuff, so they bought a trailer. The thing is a missile trailer for the small frigate. That That's what it is. It's not autonomy. It's just I wanted a bigger ship, so I bought a trailer. Yeah. there's this. I know there's people out there going, oh, these autonomous ships and they go off on their own. Go, no, these will be in the same flotilla as an ex- – uh, like you said, it's the trailer or the quiver full of all the extra arrows they need. Yeah, it's it's like you've got, the, you've got the esky with a dozen bees in the car and you've got a trailer with a few slabs. That's that's what it is. So, you know, back to the, your point, and I think you're spot on, area denial – is not done when you look at the size of Australia's exclusive economic zone and the size of the Indo-Pacific, it's not going to be done by getting 11 more frigates with some missile trucks along. You need mass. And the only way you can get mass, if you're the Australian military, is autonomy. It is the only way. But you've also got the situation, as we're seeing, uh, with, you know, with the Houthis and so on, where you've got over two million dollar missiles being used to take out twenty to two hundred thousand dollar drones. So it's all very well to have your, uh, you know, vessel that the, the trailer that can carry all these extra missiles. But where's the money for the missiles? How are you going to replenish at sea? And where's the the logic in using twenty to thirty million dollars a pop to take out something that they've just built fifty of because for the same money, you know that kind of thing. Well, the reason the U.S. Navy is using multi-million dollar missiles to shoot down Houthi drones and missiles is because that's all they've got to do that with. Because the assumption has been it's peer competitor time. We'll be firing multi-million dollar missiles at each other. What if unfortunately your peer competitor? has paid attention to what the Houthis and the Ukrainians are doing. And they don't just have multi-million dollar missiles. They also have lots of cheap drones, surface, air, and undersea, which is the only credible conflict scenario that I can see in our region. So one of the most illuminating comments, because I think this is rusted on behavior and assumptions inside our military, and it's not surprising. Militaries in peacetime routinely are complacent and they get shock obsolescence when they get into conflict. That's why peacetime military leaders are never military and wartime military leaders. Peacetime military leaders routinely get sacked when a war comes along because they are the wrong people. They do not understand what they need to do. So should we wait for a shock or should we see the shock of the way the small, the smart, and the many is being used by the Ukrainians and the Houthis. Uh, One comment I think was really illuminating, though, as I said, was Angus Campbell in the parliament just recently. He was asked, so are you working, talking with the Ukrainians and learning lessons about the war in Ukraine? And he gave a long answer to this, which was, well, actually, we're talking with our Five Eyes partners. I know they're not talking directly with the Ukrainians, the people in the fight. And we're spending a lot of effort to make sure we don't learn the wrong lessons from that war. He did not spend a single breath 
telling us of one lesson he had learned. He told us how hard they were working to not learn lessons from that war. And when I look at the Navy plan, I think that hard work to not learn anything about the current wars has paid off. <laughs> in spades. It, it also seems strange to me that uh, in advocating for a maritime A2 AD strategy and now acquiring platforms that can shoot a lot of missiles to try and achieve this A2 AD strategy, um, to in a contested maritime space, we rely on shipments of missiles from the US to replenish our ships that are trying to secure contested maritime space. The missiles have to cross the war zone to get to us to then be fired in the war zone. Mm, yes. that That's a big issue, which brings up... So I, I was really struck when I read the review about, okay, let's accept that the small and the smart and the many are the wrong lesson to learn. Let's just accept that... These general purpose frigates with some extra missile trucks along combined with the air warfare destroyers and the hunters, that's exactly what we need. Well, in parallel, you must get that guided weapons enterprise running much faster than it is. It's going to have to stop crawling, let alone just walking. It's going to have to start running and it's going to have to make all the missiles that you're going to want to put in these missile cells that you're putting to sea. But the timeline for that guided weapons enterprise is on the go slow. So you know, it's going to take a few years to assemble a short-range land missile because we're crawling, and I think we're going to stay crawling for a very long time. So the missile cells will be at sea, but there will be no missiles in them. Because they'll all be coming from the US, and whoever the enemy will just be able to interdict them on the way, and our, our VLS will be empty. Yep, so we're back. We're back to the fitted for but not with era, if you remember that. You know, back in the 90s, it was, well, look, you know, I can't afford to actually equip these ships, but I'm going to buy them and I'll, when the time comes, I'll buy all the extra stuff I need in the moment. Well, problem with relying on that as a strategy is if there is a conflict, the Americans are going to need all the missiles they can get themselves. And we'll be like people at the Coles counter, the Coles Deli. You know, we're at number 412, and our, our order is very important to them, but they'll deal with their priority <laughs> customer first. And that makes me think that right now is very much like the 1930s, where uh, if you remember, you know, we, we went over to the UK to see what aircraft they had, and then we went to the US, and then Wackett comes back and says, oh, the British will be too busy, their stuff's inferior, we're buying American, and they'll let us license. And the press and the parliament almost crucified him for doing not buying British old chap. Well, does that sound a lot like nobody gets fired for buying the US? Right now, we get those missiles from the US. We can't license the IP to be able to build the smarts. Sure, we, the, yesterday it was all the talks at the Congress, sorry, on Wednesday, about, oh, we're building the rocket motors, we're building the bodies, we're building the warheads. What about the smarts? You've got to be able to build the smarts in country. And who's going to let us do that? There's also a, there's a, a business case there too. I mean, companies like you know Raytheon and the big missile manufacturers—they're not going to build them here unless there's a business case to do it. Which means we would need to commit to having a big inventory to give them the business case, or as we were saying before, need to think a little bit creatively about our contracting mechanisms and incentivize private capital to be involved. Because I mean, otherwise, it doesn't stack up. Well, yes, another thing that could actually be done at the moment, if you want to fire a missile in an exercise in the Australian military, 
you need to get a letter signed by God. You need to get permission signed by the chief of the defence force. It may have to go to the governor general. I don't know. But to, to fire a single missile, you need the most senior signature and it's, you know, son, spend this very wisely. Well, if you want to train as you're going to fight, simulation's great, but you're going to have to use some real missiles and real munitions. Well, we should be buying enough to routinely exercise with actual missiles. That's, that then starts to bump up the order numbers for domestic production. And you're quite right. There's so many barriers to a big American company saying, look, I love you Aussies so very, very much. You know, I've decided to set up a massive manufacturing plant in Australia because I hate my local Congress people who make all the rules and give me all the money. And when I tell them I'm setting up a plant in Brisbane instead of Connecticut, they're going to kill me, but I love it. I'm going to do this. They're not going to do it. It doesn't matter how much they tell us they love us. So domestic production ideally also ends up having some domestic designs. I look at a company like Gilmore Space. They're probably going to launch, whether that launch they're doing shortly succeeds or not, it will be a success because they will learn from it and they will do it again. They will do it again. That's why you know there's been the first US mission back to the moon is a private mission. And SpaceX is the launch company globally. So a company like that, Gilmore Space or some other great companies, EOS, um, one I just spoke with recently, C2 Robotics, they can actually make stuff here. That's what we should be doing. And Gilmore got there through capital raises. I think they just had a Series D and raised about $55 million. Yeah, but they've, they're not banking on defense as a customer because defense is an unreliable customer. That, that is the problem. So defense needs to realize it's got to be a reliable customer. And you're not a reliable customer if you're not giving contracts and cash flow to the companies. But you think about it strategically as well. So if everybody is using the same thing, so everybody's using the SM-2 missile, everybody is using the HIMARS launcher. Well, if you're the adversary, you want to exploit that foreign system to understand its vulnerabilities and its weaknesses. So the lucky thing for you is you've only got to reverse engineer a very limited number of systems, and they're all the ones the Americans use, which you had to do anyway. If you get into conflict and these crazy Australians have something made by Gilmore Space and uh, EOS and C2 Robotics and Oculus, the whole thing can be really nasty for your adversary because you brought a diverse set of problems to them. So, you know, if, if you're thinking strategically, you should want diversity in your inventory. This kind of circles back to the point that we were just talking about GUIO. Uh, and the speed, at, the slow speed at which that program's moving. I think in the GUIO context, we've only, or I've only ever heard of Gimler's manufacturer in Australia for HIMARS. That is one of a range of uh, weapons capabilities that we want to be firing from our ships and from whatever we're getting. But the the guided weapons and explosive ordnance enterprise, which I would have thought would be delivering all of those weapons capabilities, is focused on delivering one of them. And I'm not sure if, if that's going to be in a time frame that's useful to us. Yes. Well, I, I know that two companies, one of them being Raphael and one of them being Konsberg, who both make very effective missiles that are operationally proven. So it's not about paperwork. It's about use in conflict. They both have 
given proposals to the Australian government and the defence organisation to set up manufacturing of their missiles here in Australia. They did that before the Ukraine war. And guess what? They don't have contracts. So, you know, if you want diversity from the big US companies, you've got to grow it with your Australian companies and you've got to work with fast-moving partners like Konsberg and Raphael. And the problem now is they made those offers before the war in Europe and before the war in the Middle East. So now Australia's at the back of the queue. There are lots of other customers wanting to work with those companies. Because we're busy trying not to learn the wrong lessons. Well, we're putting a lot of effort into that. And as I say, I think that's really paying off for us. (laughs) And meanwhile, we've also got the South Koreans saying, hey, we'll license you our tech. Ooh, ooh. And, you know, we need to really look at that. On that point, actually, Michael, uh, on the tier two, the general purpose frigates, let's say we're looking at the four that were specifically listed in the surface fleet of you, assuming that we don't branch out because that's thinking creatively. We don't like doing that. Um, would a extant weapons inventory limit or dictate which of those ships we select? Are we going to just try and select one that aligns with the missiles we've currently got? Because let's say we, we procure a Korean ship. Does that mean uh, that we need to then procure Korean missiles and uh, Korean C2 systems and all of it? And will that prevent us from getting it? Well, that is a fantastic issue to raise you on because you know, this is why when people say just buy off the shelf, you immediately bump into a bunch of issues like this. So, you know, I'm interested, um, what combat system is this ship going to have? Because the Australian Defence Organisation made a decision a few years ago, it was going to have two combat systems, the Aegis system and the Saab 9LV system. The Aegis system was for major surface combatants. Saab 9LV was for everything else, including what our current general purpose frigate is, the ANZAC. So as soon as you say, well, actually, I'm not going to change that, you undo a bunch of other things. And I look at this mantra inside our military and defense organization that everything has to be integrated with everything else. And I find it hard to imagine they're going to not insist on lacing this new general purpose frigate into everything else they're already doing, which means American weapons and a combat system that interfaces. And then you run into a lot of IP issues between America and yep. Korea. Or, or you do massive change to the existing frigate and we go down the spiral of death that we're having with the Hunter. Or, I mean, I don't doubt that the Koreans could deliver the capability if we didn't try and make it the perfect capability, if we said this is good enough to achieve our strategic objective, which is A two AD in an operation in a strategically relevant time frame, which you know the Americans are saying is twenty twenty seven over Taiwan, Korean industry could get us there. They have the capability, but it's our requirements, you know, integrating with every last little thing and basically Americanizing every platform that we get that is going to be the problem. I got this example. I've done a bit of work with Babcock. Um, They're making something called the Type 31. So let me disclose, I've done some work with them. So that's why I know this. But um, the analogy they used with the Type 31 frigate was they got the Royal Navy out of the behavior that has got us into the mess we're in of continuous shipbuilding and no warships for a decade. And this is the inveterate fiddling with design before you commission the ship and then while it's going through production. 
So they said, look, the way to do this and the way this is happening with the Type 31 is instead of getting all your requirements for your smartphone as a family together and then going off to a smartphone manufacturer and saying, make me this smartphone, and three years later at a cost of a million dollars a smartphone, the family has five smartphones, you get your requirements together. You go to the smartphone shop and you say, here are my requirements, which best meets these, I'll have that one. And you walk out of the shop with a phone that works. So that that is the only way that this can work. And that is going to be a really hard change in behavior for the Royal Australian Navy because they won't be able to integrate everything with everything, but they will get a ship. What's more important? Mm. Well, because... I can, I, can, it's, I can promise the enemy that I'm going to have an integrated system. Just don't attack just yet. Well, also, just give me a little bit longer. Back to my point about vulnerabilities. If everything's integrated with everything, you've got to weigh in to everything. You find a vulnerability and you've got a vulnerability throughout everything integrated with everything. So, you know, the Ukrainians are operating disconnected. In fact, I was just hearing about a US general who is learning lessons about the war in Ukraine. He has a giant list of lessons he's learning. And one of the things is not to have everything connected with everything, because as soon as it is, you've got emissions, you've got signatures, and you're a target. So, you know, there's a way to do this, but it means breaking a whole bunch of rusted on behaviours that our military and the defence organisation have. And I think we're coming back to the uh, the point of an organisation like that with that much rusted on behaviour needs an external shock to change, which unfortunately for us may be a conflict. Well, you could argue that the government going to two external groups, one for the strategic review and one for this independent assessment of the surface fleet, shows they're trying to give the organisation an external shock. But Mm -hmm. the people they chose were just insiders who happened not to be working, who happened to be working outside the place. So they got the same answer as if they'd asked the defence machine to do it. So, but I think there is an appetite there to have the place change, but there's no real understanding about how to get that change to happen. Well, Michael, there's so much more that we were looking at contemplating discussing in this session from personnel numbers, IIP eventually appearing in the in the budget, Taipan, you know, even defence transparency, but clearly we'll have to bring you back for other episodes. Uh, it's been great having you with us and it's been a very robust and excellent discussion and uh, it's gone into some great discussion points. So thank you very much for that. I think my favorite, my highlight was um, if you need to fire a missile, you need to get your paperwork signed by God. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. I'd, I'd be happy to say, you know, my prediction for the May budget is there is no integrated investment program that is delivered. Uh, Defence says we're working very, very hard and very diligently and we just need a bit more time. You know, I tried that excuse when I was in fifth class in primary school and my my teacher found it unacceptable. Well, we've been hearing it for years and I suspect you're right. It will not change. And yeah, I'm not going to give you any money bet on that one because I totally agree. No, I wouldn't take your money on that one, Grant. Yep, yep. (laughs) Well, thanks, Michael. Appreciate you being on the show. Great. Thank you, Grant. And thank you, Ewan. It'd be great to chat with you again. Uh, The thing about looking at defence is it's like an exploding suitcase of issues. So uh, at least we've made a start. 
Thanks, Michael. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening once again. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can like us on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice as this helps others discover our show. Meanwhile, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back in the not too distant future with another informative episode. The ADM Podcast is produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Australian Defence Magazine, a Yaffa media title. The views of the people appearing on this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Australian Defence Magazine, the Department of Defence or the guest's employer. If you wish to use any of the audio in this podcast, please contact Australian Defence Magazine via their website, australiandefence.com.au or via email at defmag at yaffa.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.